Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest questions, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is an immigrant designer, developer, and serial founder who has paved the way to success through his facing his own hardship and focusing on the power of community. What started out as a job posting group on Facebook with 25 friends is now a thriving community of over 29,000 people and a a full-fledged business called Hire Club, which grew to 10K MMR in 150 days after launching its subscription service and now has 20% month-over-month growth and 30,000 in monthly revenue. And it's really easy to see why. Hire Club has helped thousands of people find their dream job at companies like LinkedIn, Facebook, Apple, Google, Instagram, Netflix, Uber, Lyft, and it is little as 15 minutes after a job is posted. They have also hosted hundreds of free workshops and live hiring events in four countries and 12 plus cities around the world. With the average job search taking up to six months on your own, Hire Club certified career coaches do it in less than two. And with an average pay raise being $10,000 for a low monthly payment of only 89, where else can you get a return on investment like that? This would be quite an accomplishment for any founder, but this optimistic entrepreneur started in the ghetto of Bombay, living in two rooms alongside 11 family members with no running water and shared bathrooms. Watching his database entrepreneur dad chase the American dream, he started coding games at a very young age. And at 22, he was flying high in the 90s dot-com boom until he lost a job in the crash. As a leader, he founded three companies, with the first being an app that hit 30,000 downloads on the first day, winning awards at TechCrunch, and earned him interviews with Time Magazine, and then losing it all after he couldn't make money. He made his first million at 33 and lost it all by 36. He has grown his agency to seven-figure revenues and a global staff of over 20 best-in-industry designers and developers with clients like Adobe, Microsoft, and Twitter. And if all that wasn't enough, he has helped dozens of other startups, wrote a book, started a few bands, had a restaurant, and learned a whole bunch of things along the way. He has shared his hero's journey in publications such as TechCrunch, Time Magazine, Adventure Beat, on founder podcasts such as Indie Hackers, and even on the entrepreneur crowdfunding reality TV series show, Meet the Drapers, where he would raise 47000 in crowdfunding. I'm honored to welcome CEO of Hire Club three-time founder, and a man whose idea of a fun birthday is searching for new hires by launching a Facebook group inspired by Fight Club, Keaton Anajaria. Hey, how you doing? I'm very glad to have you on the show and kind of dive into your journey. It's been really amazing researching you, looking at everything. Um, I want to start with where Hire Club started on Facebook with these 25 people. Yeah. Um, and, and that well, intro was wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, hearing you say that, uh, I, I just, uh, I'm remembering all the stories we went through to get there, right? Because success is never a straight path. Right. Um, so Hire Club started when I had my design agency. Um, we were working on projects for companies like Twitter uh, and Adobe and Microsoft. And I instituted a policy of uh, Design Fridays. So what that was for from noon to the end of the day on Friday, we would just think of new ideas. Um, mm-hmm. um, being creative, trying to use that design energy and design thinking to think of problems to solve. And as an agency, one of our biggest problems was always finding great people to hire. We had great clients and we could pay for people to work for us, but it was always hard to find the talent that we really wanted. So one of the ideas we brainstormed on a Friday and it happened to be my birthday, uh, <laughs> it's March 28th, uh, 2011. We said, let's have this thing called hire club. And we had a few simple set of rules, obviously playing off Fight Club. Uh, the first rule was obviously you don't talk about Hire Club. But right. one of the rules was be kind. And one of the rules was uh, post jobs you have access to. Um, one of the rules was uh, vouch for your friends. And um, a lot of these rules are still our rules today. They really have not changed. And what we did is I started a Facebook group. And this is in 2011. So Facebook groups really weren't that big a thing like they are now. And I invited 25 of my friends. And we say to the rules... And almost immediately people started posting jobs because I was an entrepreneur and I had 
living in San Francisco, I had access to a great community. I just invited 25 people I thought would be great to help kind of start the group. That very first day, people were getting interviews. And that first week, mm-hmm. we had our first hire. And since then, it's just grown organically by... If you think about job posts in general, when do you go to a job post page? You almost never do, right? You go to it once and it's never social. You're never actually talking to the people involved. And what we did, and I think we were one of the first you know, groups to do this um, and platforms, is we made job posting social. You could actually talk to the poster. The poster could talk about their company and what they cared about. And mm-hmm. it was a social media conversation versus just a, an email or anything like that, right? And so for us, you know, I think this was the big change that we had, which was, um, hey, let's make jobs something that actually you got to talk to a human, right? Right. right. Is that an idea? Versus if you look at applying for jobs online, it's like, it's just this cold, empty uh, echo. You don't hear anything from anybody. And so immediately people started inviting their friends. Um, They wanted to find jobs. They wanted people to hire and, you know, what started as a few small companies, literally every company, cruise automation, like you mentioned, Lyft, Uber, Apple, uh, Google, um, and even small startups no one's ever heard of, right? Like we ourselves, we use Hire Club to hire. Um, in fact, Hire Club is how I found my co-founder. She mm. was, she was a, a member we found uh, through the, the group and now she's my co-founder. And so um, we really believe in the power of community and referrals to make people um, give people access to jobs they normally wouldn't have. Mm. Tell me about uh, when this thing was growing sort of on the side of you building another startup where you were actually raising money, right? You'd sunk some of your own money into it. Right. When did you decide to change focus and how was higher club growing at this time? So the other startup was called card flick and it actually started the same day. And that mm-hmm. one, um, the idea around that was digital business cards. And, uh, you know, I'm a big follower of the lean methodology where, you know, learning from users. And at Hire Club, in the early days, we never spent any money. It was just purely, let's build a community. Let's see what, you know, we can create out of that. Let's help people, you know, succeed with work. And on CardFlick, we put money into it, right? We built this app. It was this beautiful design. We were the first ones to do uh, a, a vis- vertical portrait layout for business cards on mobile. Now, if you look at Apple Wallet, it's basically a copy of what we did. <laughs> right. Um, and so is airdrop is actually very similar to our UIs that we had very, very early in 2011. And we made this video showing people with a flick gesture of sending your business card from one phone to another. That was a really great gimmick, right? It worked beautifully. It was really easy to sell and people really liked it. And business cards, if you think about it, what is the core problem? They're essentially building a brand. They're not just to connect info. In fact, to this day, business card apps, most people focus on the connecting the info. You have a business card because you're proud of what you're building, right? Mm-hmm. You want to show off this amazing design work that you've had. And we created a tool to let people make beautiful business cards. Anyone could. Just like Instagram lets you make great photos, um, we let you make great business cards. And so that um, was something we, you know, I, one, I was funding out of the agency for myself for a bit. Um, we launched at TechCrunch Disrupt and we won audience choice. And we were like, what? How did this happen? And that immediately propelled us into the top of the app, uh, stratosphere. We had like 30,000 downloads our first day. And I thought I was on top of the world, right? We had this product and it was like viral and then people were using it and everyone was like, oh my God, this is great. Flicking is going to be the next thing. <laughs> and um, we never had a business model. Mm. Right. And back then, you know, this was the era of social, right? With, with, with venture capital. Even some of my investors were like, don't worry about making money. Just make this grow and make it growth. Make yeah. Growth is all, <laughs> at all costs. And, 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 you know, in hindsight, of course, you know, we see how silly that is. But back then, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, it's my first startup that I'm the CEO of and everything's going great. And I'm like, this is it. Yeah. I'm going to do what people are saying and we're going to build this thing and everything's going to be great. And I just made so many mistakes. You know, and and not having a clear business model, um, my co-founder at that time, who was an iOS engineer, ended up leaving. So we lost one of our main expenses, which was an iOS engineer. Right, I'm the back end mm-hmm. guy, and he was iOS, and that was devastating. And and it just, even though we had raised some money from some great people, um, we didn't have enough and to uh, stick around. And a year later, we ended up shutting it down. And I'll tell you, it was a really hard time. It was not an easy thing to let go of people who've been working for you for a year. 
and say, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I failed you. Like, we don't have enough money to pay anybody, right? right? Like, we paid off the last paychecks and we moved on. And um, and so, like, that was completely a roller coaster, right? Like, going from zero to everything to nothing. Um, but it was a lot of lessons learned. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm one of those either... Uh, stubbornly uh, foolish people who needs to be repeatedly make mistakes uh, (laughs) to learn it. But I do like testing out and trying out new things. Um, And so, yeah, that was uh, the story of card flick. Even today, people still ask me about it. People are making business cards apps today and they're like, Hey, tell me about card flick. What went wrong? What went right? What went wrong? And I constantly say, you know, like, where's the business model? Right. Um, So that was the, the kind of groundwork for as a first time CEO, founder, uh, of a startup learning and doing some good things and a lot of bad things. And how, um, how did this transition to Hire Club? So um, it didn't for a bit. Hire Club at that time was just growing. Uh, we went from 25 to 100 to 1,000. Um, and around 2013, when uh, Cardflick ended up shutting down, um, I, with my tail between my legs, went back to consulting. And I started building products again for other companies and doing what I was good at, right? You know, I knew how to do that mm-hmm. work and I needed money. And um, Hire Club was just doing its thing, you know, and, and uh, we were helping people. We had a couple of events here and there. And what ended up happening is in 2017, uh, in March, we hit 10,000 members. And I was like, wow. And here's a great thing about perspective. I've always thought I'm terrible at social media. And it took us hitting 10,000 members where I said to someone, hey, I'm bad at social media. And someone was like, are you kidding? You have 10,000 members in the Facebook group. Right. You're good at social media. <laughs> and like, you're, it's so easy to fool yourself into believing some things that are going to hold you back. Right. Mm. And that's a really bad thing for anyone, especially for a founder who you, who you need to find what your strengths are. But we, we had 10,000 members. And then in August of 2017, a friend of ours, Sharo Sharania, um, reached out to us and said, do you want to be on this TV show? And I'm like, what? Well, for Higher Club, there's this thing called Republic. It's by the founders of AngelList. And there's a TV show called Meet the Drapers. And what you'll do is you'll pitch in front of the Draper family, uh, uh, Tim Draper, Bill Draper, and Jesse Draper. And you'll get to talk about Higher Club. And if uh, they like you, they'll invest. And at the same time, we're going to run a crowd investing campaign. Now, this is different than a crowdfunding campaign where you're uh, potentially paying for a product in the future. You're actually an investor in this. There's a thing called mm-hmm. uh, Reg C, uh, the founders of AngelList and uh, Republic, uh, you know, did a lot of work to legally make this possible so that anyone can invest in a startup. Now, being a community-minded person, I love this. I was like, oh my God, this sounds incredible. Let's do this. Right. We literally, on like the first week of August, you know, Shar Rose reached out to me. We hadn't even incorporated Higher Club yet. And the next week, I'm on this TV show. And it's this reality TV show. And we're on the first episode of the first season. And at that time, our pitch for Higher Club was we were, we were going to be an uh, uh, Upwork model, right? We were going to let anyone work at any time for anyone else really easily, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we were seeing that in the group now, organically. Like people wanted to work for other people, but they wanted to work immediately, right? And so we were going to use that kind of um, interaction to offshoot that growth. Um, I had never pitched Higher Club before. Um, and I went on the show and I thought I totally bombed. The Drapers did not like me. Um, they were asking all these hard-hitting questions. I did my best to hold up. Turns out, even though I thought, like I literally at the end of that taping, I was with a friend and I was like almost crying. I was like, oh my God, this is our chance. I totally blew it. You know, we had, right. we had like shot this video and spent this money to like make ourselves look great and, and, and talk to our, our customers and our users and our great community. But we really didn't have it together. You know, we had really hadn't pitched Higher Club before. And it turns out the show launched and we were the underdog. And mm. because we were always so positive and we took their questions well, the audience really, really loved us. And we ended up raising $47,000 from our community before we even built this product. Higher Club had not even built a product yet. And our community, many who didn't have jobs, invested $25, $250,000. The biggest investor was $5,000. And these are people I've only met online, right? And they're saying, we believe in you. We believe in the community you created. It's warm. It's wonderful. You're helping people. We believe that you can build something off of this. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. So um, we ended up you know, growing to 20,000 members that year at the end of 2017. And what we learned was that you know, there's a skill to do a job, right? But there's a skill to get a job, which is actually mm-hmm. different. 
And we realized we were going to fit in that sweet spot. And we started offering coaching at $60 for 30 minute sessions. And what it was is you would get connected to a coach on our platform and they could help you with your resume. They could help you with your mock interviews or salary negotiation. And we were doing single sessions, like a one-time booking, right? It was like coaching on demand, right? Right. And we, um, because of our community, we were bringing all these great coaches and people were needing this because they were, what was happening is they would post that, hey, I want to get this job. And we realized, hey, your resume is up, up to par for this job or your interview skills need work. We always wanted people to find success, but it's really hard to do that on your own sometimes, right? And no one ever teaches you what's a good resume. They don't teach you that in college. <laughs> and no one ever teaches you how to interview. Think about that. You've never been taught how to interview. But that interview, I call interviews a $100,000 meeting, right? You're mm. going to this meeting, potentially making one, two, three years of salary. And let's face it, in the professional world, $50,000 or $100,000 is not uncommon for professional salaries. So it's a really uh, potentially amazing meeting. Now, if you're having a $100,000 opportunity in front of you, how much are you going to invest? A lot, right? <laughs> People buy new ties, they buy new shirts, right? Like, you know, they do all this work, but they don't do the interview prep, right? And the, the truth about interviews is you really only get one shot at the company, right? It's very rare that you'll interview the company and then later on they'll be like, hey, come back in. They'll say, oh, we like you, we'll keep you on file. That often doesn't happen, right? right. And so you really only have one shot. So what we started doing is helping people practice interviews. And then we started seeing these incredible results because they actually had what our coaches were certified coaches or they were HR professionals who had been in the hiring world for, for 10 years plus, And they knew what companies were looking for when it came to hiring. And again, interviewing is a very different skill than actually doing the work. And we were seeing these incredible results. People would do interviews with us who hadn't gotten jobs for six months. And all of a sudden they were getting a job, right? They would uh, practice, uh, you know, their, their skills with their coach and ask these hard questions and all of a sudden, you know, instead of having this long six month average job search, they were finding jobs in two months. So we were in decreasing the time to find a job by three X, right. you know, like that's incredible. Like that's, you know, one of the things I would say, having not had a job many times, the stress of being unemployed is probably one of the greatest stresses in life, mm -hmm. right? Ultimately, actually, when I got laid off in the first dot com, it led to my divorce. I was so uh, depressed and so, uh, you know, as a young father, lacked um, the kind of confidence after losing my job that it just drove me to madness, honestly. I was depressed and, and, and things were really hard. And so I intimately know how hard it is to look for work and how hard it is um, to be alone in that process. So by offering coaching, we were not just offering the skill set to get a job, to improve your interview skills, we were offering you support. Right. And we've seen a lot of research and data saying the number one stress in most people's life is money. Right. Guess what the number two is work. Mm. Right. You're at work 40 hours plus a week. Right? right. You're thinking about work all the time. You're working with these people eight hours a day or more and you have no one to talk to about it. Right. You have no one to help you through. And if you're a woman in tech or you're a person of color in tech or even any job or you're coming from any kind of, you know, a veteran or anything where you're coming from a background where, um, you know, people have challenged your, your knowledge or, or your ability, um, work becomes even more stressful, right? right? So we started seeing having support for people that work was a massive indicator of success. Now, if you look at traditional co career coaching, it's almost always executive coaching. And to be frank with that, that's like for the 0.01%. It's like $1,000 an hour, only CEOs are able to afford it. And Look, if I help a, a person who's making $10 million, making $1 million more, that's, actually, that's fantastic. But with Hire Club, what we were seeing is we would coach people. And like one of the stories the other week, we helped a woman get a $45,000 raise. Wow. It was a 43% salary increase. These are life-changing events. In yeah. fact, to date, we have increased salaries by over $1 million. Wow. Right, we are making a real life impact into people's lives by matching them with a coach who can help you succeed at work, and have, by offering the support and kind of feedback that a coach can do, um, which is very different than mentorship, to help you accelerate. So the same kind of executive coaching that CEOs were getting, we're doing that for everyday people, right? Mm -hmm. And starting at a relatively affordable price point. Um, you know, we started at sixty nine. Our do our prices have increased because we've also learned. Um, like any founder, you got to charge more. Right. If you're providing a valuable service, we offer a lot of free services. Right? You know, we do a lot of free events. We do a lot of free networking. What we did realize for coaching 
Uh, we are a gig platform, right? We do pay our coaches for the coaching. We pay them $100 an hour. You know, I challenge you to find a gig platform where the average pay is $100 an hour. Right? <laughs> yeah. We really not just value our, um, you know, customers. We really value our coaches. They're a strong part of our community. And without them, we couldn't have all the success. And they're, in fact, driving a lot of the success. And so our coaches get paid really well because they're trained and they're very knowledgeable in what they're doing, but it also creates the environment of their success becomes our success. Right. I don't believe in racist to bottom. I don't want to create a gig platform where uh, the tech, I saw a tweet today, your technology is not paying people less, right? That's not right. technology, right? Um, and we're seeing those effects with larger gig platforms like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Instacart, where a lot of workers are, are rebelling at the issue, issue of, hey, I'm not being paid enough, right? So not only are we paying our coaches well, um, we are helping our candidates um, and our, our coachees make real positive changes in their career, right? Whether it's getting a job, becoming a better manager, becoming a better founder. Um, and we're creating these long-term relationships. The average length of coaching with us is six months plus, right? That's actually huge, right? And right. typically on your own as a coach, if you're on your own, you might have three to four clients in a quarter. Our average coach, some of our best coaches have 15 plus clients, wow. right? So we're putting money in their pocket. We're helping them be a better coach, Right. In fact, some of our coaches subscribe to Hire Club to get become better coaches, right? Because mm-hmm. we have senior coaches who can help train them. And so it's creating this what I call this economy of coaching. Right? Coaching, coaches, coaching, uh, or coaching coaches, coaching, coaches, other coaches. And <laughs> it creates this like loop back and feedback where our coaches become better, which helps our clients become better. And in fact, we actually had our first transition. One of our clients who was a coach for a year is now one of our coaches, wow. right? So we're actually like, well, helping you grow and now she's making more money, right? Mm. And, and, you know, and a lot of people talk about diversity and they, they talk about impact and inclusion. I strongly believe the strongest diversity is economic diversity. If I cannot put money in your bank account, it's just, it's just saving face otherwise, right? right? We're putting money into moms returning to work. We're putting money into uh, women of color who are not getting paid well. Uh, we're putting money into immigrants um, who are not getting the offers that they deserve to get, right? Um, and so I strongly believe economic diversity is the best way to have an impact on modern life um, and to show the real support, right? If I, if I just give you a, you know, hey, we want to be diverse, inclusive, that doesn't mean anything, right? But if I actually say, hey, I'm going to pay you or help you get money, um, that is real economic diversity. This mission to change people's lives through employment is something that greatly resonates with you because of your childhood. Um, and tell me about living in the ghetto of Bombay and sort of like watching your dad chase that American dream. How did this shape you? So I'm a Gujarati. It's a kind of Indian. And I'm actually Kachi Bhatia. That's like our, actually our family. And years ago, there was a really, really rich Kachi Bhatia man in Bombay. And he donated this building to the Kachi Bhatia community that was poor. And uh, this is the building my grandparents lived in, my parents lived in, and I was lived in. This is the building I was born in. It's a, a four-story building in the middle of Bombay. It's like literally a village in the middle of Bombay. Um, at that time, growing up, um, it didn't have running water. Every morning, my grandmother and often the women in the family would wake, wake up at 4 a.m., go upstairs where they would pump water from the, the hoses into donkeys, buckets, and <laughs> into the apartments. And on top of that, on the given floor of the building we had three shared toilets. Now each floor had something like 20 apartments. Can you imagine 20 apartments sharing three toilets? That's a, and these were Indian style toilets, let's be honest, they're not very, <laughs> right? It's just a hole in the ground. Um, and you would wash with water. And this is the building I was born in until I was about five or six where I lived in. And this is, it was funny enough, uh, my mom and dad were both grew up in this building and they met in this building. My mom, my dad was my mom's tutor. And um, we, I was living as a young child in like a two room, um, probably like 800 square feet, maybe less, um, with 11 people, right? My grandparents, my, my mom and dad and, and my sisters, um, and, uh, uh, some aunts. And so it's crazy to think of that's where I started. Right. And what was lucky though, my, my parents or my dad and my mom are the American dream. So in, in the eighties, my dad had the opportunity to go to H1B visa. And we moved from uh, Bombay, India, all the way to Louisville, Kentucky. 
just imagine <laughs> what that uh, transition was like. And I was about five years yeah. old. And uh, it was obviously a very big change, right? And, and my dad was a database programmer. He used to work in punch cards. And I, the way I got my start was um, I was a kindergartner in Louisville, Kentucky. And they had some contests to sell like sun catchers. It were the things you put on the window and like they sign, shine light in. And apparently I was very good at sales even then. And I sold the most. And I was like excited. And the prize was the Atari 2600. Oh, nice. Imagine in the eighties being a five-year-old and winning an Atari. Right. I was on top of the world. I was like, yeah, I want to play video all day. This is going to be exciting. Now I typically have very much Asian tiger parents. You know, my parents are Indian. My dad immediately returned the Atari. <laughs> and got a TI-99 4A, which is honestly a, a heap of junk. It was <laughs> not a gaming machine. It was a, it was a programming machine that uses cassette tapes to like store data. Uh, and I'm definitely aging myself in this. Uh, but it was not a gaming machine by any means. And I was devastated. I was like, I won this Atari. But my dad didn't want me playing games, right? Very much, very much an Indian dad. Um, and so I said, well, that's not going to work for me. And so I looked at all the games out on the Atari world and I started learning how to program. I learned basic and like, there's a picture of me actually where I'm programming and playing games at five years old because I was making the games that I wasn't allowed to play. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, even though my dad instilled a great sense of work ethic in me, uh, I think play is super important. Now as a five-year-old, I want to play games. So that's how I learned to program. Right. One of the first games I made was uh, very much similar to like a Pac-Man type of game where you were running around the screen and eat up dots because it's based on another game that I wanted to, to, to play. Um, and that's how I got my start in programming. And I realized very early on being an immigrant in uh, first Kentucky and then Richmond, which is a very isolating experience. Let's be honest, America back then and even now is not very friendly to immigrants sometimes. Um, and I experienced a lot of racism. So I turned to technology to kind of find my outlet, technology and music. Mm. And um, I was online in BBSs when I was 10 years old, which is a precursor to the internet days, right? Before internet chat room, before all that, I would go on these like wares forums and download games and meet people and we would talk online. Um, and I actually was, what I, what I know now is community. I was building my community online. Right. Right. And I had a, a handle. I forgot what it was, probably something cheesy, <laughs> the, the 12 year old, right? Right. I'd spend my whole day, mostly it was my games. Let's be honest, I was 12 years old, right? Um, but I also love meeting people. I meet people, people around, around all the world. In fact, there was this game called Island of Kesmai on CompuServe, which is really dating me right now, 1987, you know, and this is long before you had WoW or Warcraft or any of these things. And it was like literally like characters on the screen. That was like a D and D type game. And I would make friends off of that. I would meet these amazing people and, and they thought I was an adult because the way I was writing online, they're like, what? You're like 12 years old. That's crazy. And I really found my community online. I really found people mm. who accepted me because look, they didn't know who I was, right? They didn't know my color or my skin. They didn't know how old I was. Right. They didn't know my background. And they, just because they knew how I was talking, they accepted me, right? And I, I think that laid a lot of groundwork for me understanding how important and a beautiful online community can be, especially if you're coming from a place where you feel isolated. And so that laid a lot of groundwork for what in the, I naturally did in higher come in the future without knowing about it. You know, I feel like in retrospect, I can recognize these things. When I was 12, I was just lonely, right? And I right. play video games and talk to people, you know? Um, but uh, that's how I learned a program. And eventually I got into design. And what was ended up happening is um, around, I was really young. I was about uh, 21 and I fell in love with my college sweetheart. sweetheart and we had, we got pregnant. I was 21. I did not know what I was doing. And my baby was born, a wonderful daughter, Kalaya. And she's about a year old after that. And I was working in a home for people with disabilities. And I was making like 10 75 an hour. And I remember I said to my uh, ex-wife, she's my wife at that point, and I said, um, I'm going to double my salary. Because as a young family, we cannot survive on 10 bucks an hour. That's not going to work. And at that time, this language came out, a program came out called Flash. This is mm -hmm. 1999, the first dot com. And I worked night shifts. So what I would do is I, would, I didn't have a laptop. I would bring my G4 Mac and my 21-inch monitor every night to my work. I was lucky enough that I, you know my work wasn't that heavy, but I could spend time. I, I was there to make sure that no one got hurt, you know? And, uh, and everyone was taken care of um, in, the, in the house I was uh, attending. And I learned how to program. 
I learned how to uh, do visual programming through Flash, which at that time was a revelation for me because I loved um, visuals, I loved music, I loved gaming, and I loved technology, but Flash was the first tool that really let me do this. So quickly, I went from having a $10 hour job as uh, uh, an attendant to uh, getting an internship in a web design company. And that internship six months later turned into a full-time offer at $20 an hour. And then then six months later turned into, I went to an interview at a startup in Seattle. I solved a bug during an interview. They were having a bug and I fixed it. They're like, you're hired. And I was making then $44 an hour. Mm. So in one year, I went from $10 an hour to $44 an hour. I was 21 years old. Imagine the impact of my life, right? right. I've done the calculation. If you look at for uh, inflation, it's, it's $109,000 a year. I was making it 22. I was on top of the world. I was, right. Wow, I got this great job. I love Flash. I love technology. The program we were making, it was a company called Headsprout, and we were teaching kids how to read using the internet. Like, whoa, incredible, right? Um, my daughter actually learned how to read this way. Um, and... I had this great job for a while. We were a funded startup. I was young and I would show up to work and I was super excited and, and I didn't really know what I was doing but, um, in terms of career stuff, but I knew what I was doing when it comes to programming and we built this great product. We were testing it every day. We had user tests every single day. People, our, our director of technology was uh, this woman, Karen, who's very, very smart. And we would interview kids every single day and have them go through the product we were building. And I firsthand got to see how important user research was. We would videotape and ask the kids questions. And because learning to read, obviously, is a very difficult thing, right? It's not a simple thing in building an online program. Uh, but something like a year later, um, you know, I got called in the office. My boss, Jeff, super nice guy. I love the guy. And he came in and said, look, I got some bad news. We got to lay you off. We're laying off a bunch of people. Um, the company's not doing so well. And I thought, because I was like one of the main engineers, I was like, the R, my official title was R&D. And I was like one of the big programmers. You know, I was one of those hotshot like coders back then, right? Like I was, I was a jerk, let's be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> um, the money went to my head, no doubt. And, um, and I got laid off and I was like devastated. I was like, holy cow, right? Like, and this is the, during the first dot com, which would became the dot bus. 30 of my friends got laid off. Yeah. And I went from like knowing this identity, this career, being a young dad and a programmer and being successful to being like, what am I doing? There's no jobs anywhere in Seattle. What's going on? And like, that was the really one of the hardest times of my life. And, and you know, like I said, ultimately led to my divorce, but, um, it also, again, laid the groundwork for me understanding and experiencing unemployment in a really significant matter, right? People talk about unemployment in terms of like, oh, helping get a job. People don't often talk about the emotional impact of unemployment or underemployment, right? The stress of not having money or knowing where money is going to come from, the stress of having a family and having to support them, the stress as a father and a male and what society puts on you of being a breadwinner. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of things happening. I was like 24 at the time. Like I was a young guy. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and luckily we ended up um, finding our way out to San Francisco and, and ended up getting a job. And that kind of laid the groundwork for my future career. But um, it took a long time. It wasn't overnight. You know, it took years and years to get back on my feet. And I think ultimately the story of my parents, what I learned from the immigration is like, you never give up no matter what happens, you don't give up because we can come from no running water, no toilets to making an America. My dad's American dream. Now he's retired. He had, you know, had a wonderful house and, and, and now he's like retired and, and my mom's retired and they're doing great. But like, if they can do it under those conditions, of course we can. Right. right. We've been, they've been, they've given us so much more opportunity to succeed in that. And so I think, um, the other groundwork that got laid really early on is like that tenacity of saying, I will not give up. Right. And that's a, that's a really, that's not like a, a thing you just decide and it happens. It's a challenge. Right. Mm-hmm. Even today with higher club as, as well as we're doing, there's days where I'm like, ah, oh, throw it up in there. Everything's not, <laughs> you know, like your emotions, I struggle with right. anxiety and like your emotions get, get, get the wrong of you. We all know as founders, uh, there's been a lot of studies saying founders can uh, suffer more depression and anxiety because of the, the pressures are under. And I don't want to kind of put founders on a platter, but I do know what that's like because I suffer that myself. Um, and there's roller coasters. And so I think the mental 
will and fortitude that you need to build up to say, I'm not going to give up on this is actually more important than what you're building. It's more important than the skills, you know, right? Like a lot of times people succeed just by just being there and not giving up, right? They're still there 10 years later, right? Trucking and doing this thing. And so I think, you know, a lot of times like people can talk about, oh, you got to build this product or do this growth hack or you got to do this design or this technology. Almost none of that matters, right? You can eventually smart, be smart enough to figure that stuff out, right? Or get coaches and advisors to figure that out. But can you teach yourself or have the support in your community with coaching and your friends and family to say, I'm not going to give up. Right. And even I do get down sometimes I'll take a break. I'll go on vacation if I can, or I'll just play video games. I still love video games and, and find a way to kind of like bounce back. Right. Yeah. And I think not enough people talk about that. Um, when it comes, like I know in, in the modern world, you read, you read like a TechCrunch article and you see like, Oh, this company got funded and this company. Look, you know, the story of success is not a straight line. It's like this wiggly, wiggly, like ups and downs and you go backwards and you go forwards. And even Higher Club, while we have found a lot of success this year and it's been absolutely incredible, we still have struggles every day, right? And um, I think the, one of the most important things is that determination, which my, which my upbringing, I think, and my parents really instilled in me. Talk to me about, I mean, obviously you've been pretty open, even in this discussion about depression imposter syndrome, anxiety, all these things that founders get. Talk to me a little bit about self-talk and valuing yourself as you're building a company. Well, I think for a long time, people weren't talking about these things, right? Now, luckily with coaching and the community, people are talking about these things. But when I was running Cardflick and it shut down, I was all all so depressed and I had so much anxiety. I felt like a failure. I felt like I let myself down, my investors down, my employees down. Uh, honestly, I don't think I always had good tools. Sometimes I turned to drinking, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had problems with drugs in the past, right? And I had to go through a lot of therapy and work to resolve that, right? Um, I have definitely felt the pressures of trying to succeed and what anxiety does. So, so anxiety, I think sometimes, the way I view that is, it like gives you this lens. Like I'll sometimes wake up and want to get something done. And all of a sudden, because of my anxiety, I need to get it done right now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I got to build this feature right now. And it's got to be amazing. And I'll, I'll look, you know what, let's, let's scrap all our code and start all over again. <laughs> and like, you know, cause it has to be perfect and it has to be you know, really great. And my anxiety is like pushing me to like do these things like in this immediate, like stressful manner. And then I'll have to catch myself. Well, hopefully catch myself and be like, wait, what's, it's been five minutes. What, what am I doing? Why am I stressing out like this? And why do I want to, recode our entire code base just because I'm feeling anxious. And I, right. what I have to do is have a lot of awareness, right? What is driving the anxiety? Why are you feeling this way? Why do I feel like I need to get things done quickly? You know, this stuff just shows up like going out to an event. When I go out to an event, sometimes I'll be like, I got to shower in two minutes. I got to get everything <laughs> done. I got to look great. And, and it'll just like these voices will start popping up really quickly and, and, and anxiously. And, and I have to like take a breath and catch myself from falling into this lens of pressure and despair and honestly like very hurtful kind of difficult things of like, I'm not good enough or I'm not going to make it. And uh, it's not easy. I I don't think I can always say I've I've, I've found a solution. What I think I have found is tools that I can use, right? Um, One of the first ones being the awareness. Ultimately you are responsible for your own well-being, right? No one else is. And so I think awareness is the first part where I'll say, okay, wait, I'm anxious. Oh, mm-hmm. wait, I'm feeling sad or depressed. Just be aware. Of it. The other thing is I get a lot of hanger, you know, like <laughs> Anjari is my family's known for being hangry. So like, I'm always, I have my snacks right next to me. I'm always carrying a snack bar. Um, there's definitely physical effects of, okay, I don't sleep really well. And that's, you know, empowers anxiety of very strongly in depression. And so, um, you know, focusing on good sleep. You know, I got a nice bed now and I got good sheets and I'm actually going to start getting weighted blankets. Someone told me that's a great thing for helping you sleep. Um, you know, I've even, I've even tried, uh, you know, nice teas at night to like help me create a ritual. I'm addicted to my device. So I'm always on my device, unfortunately, which doesn't help for sleep. We all know how that is. But I think you'd start finding tools that work for you, right? And one of the best ones is talking to someone. Right? Mm-hmm. So I have a coach through Higher Club. When I'm 
feeling whatever, I text them like, guess what I'm feeling? I'm feeling anxious because of X. And we talk through it. Or I'll text a friend, right? Holy cow, today was really stressful because of this. And, and a lot of times people, you know, there's an Instagram verification or Facebook verification of people's lives where everything looks perfect, right? Oh, everyone's on vacation and beautiful and, and sexy and going to all these great places and, and every business is doing wonderful. And I post a lot about our struggles, right? I talk a lot about the things I go through, whether it's work or personal, and I'm very open in that sense. Um, and I think that's the other thing is recognizing what's happening and talking about the not so perfect things, right? I think there's a modern uh, myth that social media has to be perfect, right? And I don't believe in that at all. And I really, really talk about the struggles and the kind of issues I have very openly, you know? And mm -hmm. I know I'm privileged enough to do that. Like I'm a man, so I don't have to do with, deal with a lot of things, uh, unfortunately, other people that have to deal with. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm relatively financially secure now. I have a salary, which is great. I mean, paid through our club, but it's great, you know? Um, so like, at the same time, I still have struggles, right? And so I think awareness, finding tools that work for you. And the other part is just get away from work sometimes, right? Like, right. It, it, we have the most wealth of any nation at any time and ever. And we are still working crazy hours. Like, that doesn't make sense. And I, I, mean, I learned this from parents. I'm a workaholic. Like, I've been on vacation. My co-founder, Lisa, has been like, get off the slack. <laughs> no, go outside. Go to the beach. Like, literally, like, right. looking at me. And I, and I think she's spot on, right? Because, um, uh, you know, she's actually leaving for vacation tomorrow. And she's like, I'll check slack. I said, no. I want to do the same thing to you. No, take a break. Um, I, have a, I have a friend, uh, Christian, and uh, he went on vacation for six months one year. And he came back and he told me this really interesting thing. The amount of vacation I took was equivalent to 20 years of American paid vacations. Wow. And he's only gone for six months. Right. And so America, I think we have this workaholic society that like two weeks of vacation is not enough. Right. So I do a lot of downtime and it's funny because people think of me as this like outgoing guy. I'm always out doing stuff. I spend half, like my, one of my favorite things to do on Sunday is just play video games and veg out, <laughs> not talk to anyone or watch Netflix or, or mm -hmm. dancing with friends or cook food or something like that. You know, like I really disconnect as often as I can. I try to turn off my phone. I'm not always good at it. It is definitely an addiction, but I do my best to like disconnect and find ways where um, I'm not looking at technology and I'm not thinking about my business all the time. And I'm getting that downtime. Um, and you know, one of the things I would like to say, Olympic athletes, which are some of the most in shape people in the world, best trained, best coaches, millions of dollars in like, you know, helping them be successful. Rest is built into their cycle. Their right. coaches will literally say, take a freaking break, dude. Right? Like you've been working out four days a week, take whatever it is, one day off and let your body, if you were, if you were into weightlifting or exercise at all, you have to have recovery days. Right. That's when the muscles actually grow. That's when you grow. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we don't do that at work. <laughs> we don't have recovery days. Like we spend these five days a week and like, we're just hammering and hammering and hammering. And then the weekend's barely time to decompress. So actually the higher club, we've created this great, I think a great culture. We work on site Monday through Wednesday and Thursday and Friday we work from home. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's for lots of reasons for that, but one, it creates this really great balance, right? Um, today's my work from home day. I've been able to do this podcast with you, but I'm, I'm also able to kind of slow down the craziness of the modern work life and take that time. And like a lot of people say, oh, we're lucky enough to do this. Yes, we are lucky enough to do this. But we made the work to do this. We made the work. Right. To do this up. And we, I'm purposely making less money right now to, in order to live like this. Right. Mm. Right. Like I could go out and to go to a large company and make probably twice what I do now being a developer and working my crazy butt off. Um, but I've chosen to say, look, I'm going to make sure my health is a priority. Right. Um, I go to a trainer twice a week. Uh, personal trainer is very similar to coaching where it's like you're investing in yourself. Uh, I did miss my session today because I didn't get enough sleep. I'm going tomorrow. Don't worry. I'm still <laughs> on. Twice a week is important to me. Um, but I think investing in your health and your kind of lifestyle to say anxiety is not going to win, right? I'm not going to let this beast, and it is a lifelong beast. You don't outgrow it. Depression is not something you magically goes away one day. It comes back in cycles, Right. Um, and I'm not going to let it win. I'm not going to let it own me and I'm going to find tools and I'm going to be able to say as a man, especially I'm going to ask for help where I need to help. Right. And I think this is exactly where coaching comes into play where and mm. it comes into play 
where we don't talk enough about getting help, right? We think there's this bootstrap mentality where we have to do everything ourselves. And ultimately, one of the things we always say with higher club and coaching is you don't have to do this alone. Right. Um, with the job market ever evolving and talking about the lifestyles that we're living between work and life um, and, you know, people switching jobs every couple of years instead of having one for 40 years. Right. How do you see jobs and employment in our lives in the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. People talk about the future of work at all, a lot. And this is actually exactly why I think higher club coaching is super important. Typically in the past, you worked at a job for 10 years. You had a manager or a mentor who was really there for you, helped you go in a career. Most people these days, like you said, 4.4 years, I think is the average stay. And in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. it's even less. It's like two years. Right. Who's there to support and mentor you? You have to invest in coaching and mentorship to have someone support you. I think the future is from day one, um, you have to be thinking about your personal brand, unfortunately. Right? Like, and, and, and there's a cheesy way of looking at personal brand, like influence. I don't think of that way. I think a personal brand is who, who are you? What do you stand for and how do you show up for other people? Mm-hmm. That's your personal brand. Right? And you have to live that honestly at all times. Right, you just to say true to that, and I think this is how I think people succeed in the modern era, but not tying their success to their company's success, but to their own brand. Right, and we're seeing some great companies like um, you know I think Apple has a policy where people don't do their own individual talks, and they've now realized we have to support employees doing that. Other companies are definitely doing a great job of that. Like I love when our our, our coaches and employees talk and share their knowledge with everyone else. It's not about hierarchy. Uh, their success. Their success is our success, right? And right. hopefully more companies will recognize in the future, but your personal ownership and direction of your career is going to be super important in the future. And you don't have to do it alone. You can have a coach, you can have mentors, you can have friends, but you do have to own that from a very young, early age. In fact, uh, this um, we had a great uh, Monday. We, had, we hosted four young high school women in, in STEM um, as part of this nonprofit called Jason. And we did a talk about careers and the future of careers on this Monday. We just had them come by. It was really wonderful. And, and five of their teachers. And one of the things I talked about is like, ultimately, what's great is you decide where your career is going in the future. It's not going to be some hmm. corporation. It's not going to be someone else telling you what to do. You get to decide. But then also the, the dare and dangerous, oh, crap, you get to decide. You know? Right. Like, right. And so um, you don't have to figure everything out day one. But you do have to recognize that you can be the own captain of your own like, journey. And, and that is really important rather than having people being told what to do. You have to kind of recognize and figure out for yourself what's right to do. And companies ultimately will recognize that. In fact, look at remote work to be a good remote mm-hmm. worker. You have to be such a self-starter, right? No, no one's there watching you and punching on the clock and making sure you're doing what you're doing. You have to do it. And if the future works can be more remote, that means more self-reliance, right? Which means better communication skills better task management skills, better time tracking skills, um, much better writing skills, right? And so like, I think in the future of work, what you want to focus on is how you communicate, um, learning to learn. Mm-hmm. Learning itself is a skill set. Like I'm, you know, 42 years old, I'm still taking two developer courses right now, right? I'm learning new technology every single, all the time, right? I just learned Vue the other day. We launched a resume builder and using Vue. And I, and I coded a majority of it. And I had never done a view before, right? Um, and I had to learn it. I, took, I literally took a video cast, right? I spent money on this course. And like, yeah. I've been a developer for 20 years. Hell yeah, I'm going to learn. So learning to learn is a super important modern skill to succeed in the workplace. So communication, learning to learn. I actually would say um, writing. I think everyone should take writing courses. I actually went to college for writing. I took creative writing in college. Luckily, the writing is a skill I've always uh, kind of embraced and loved and it's been kind of my outlet. Writing, I think, is one of the most important skills. Look at most of online social media. It's writing, right? Facebook mm-hmm. is writing. Twitter is writing. Instagram, really, you can have a great photo, but it doesn't have a great caption. What's the matter, right? right. right. So, so writing, I think, probably is one of the most number one skills that you can invest in. So we always tell clients, take writing courses, take public speaking courses, Toastmasters, whatever it is, but invest in your ability to communicate. These are skills. It doesn't matter what your role is, whether you're a developer, a designer, product manager, uh, you know, a construction worker. Be, being a good communicator is so essential for the modern workforce. And ultimately gets, brings you more money because if you can communicate your needs and your visions, you can get money for it. 
Mm-hmm. You can get better paid for it. And so, so learning to learn communication, writing, um, there's courses like nonviolent communication you can take. There's courses around active listening you can take. Those are all great things to take. I've taken both of those. Um, um, and there was one more, I forgot. Oh, financial awareness. <laughs> so I think that is the, uh, having made money in the past and having lost money in the past and now being a founder at a founder salary, which is not very high, um, and having to be very smart about money. Um, I was telling the, the, the girls from Jason, like, uh, financial aptitude is probably the most important skill. Because <laughs> let, let's be honest, I was 24 making all this money and look, it was all gone really quickly. I was yeah. being smart about it. And because companies don't have 401ks as much as they used to, bigger ones do, but like you're responsible for your future and your financial well-being. People should have a six months emergency fund. And, and I realize a lot of people don't have the chance to build that because of the, the money that they're in or the jobs that they're in, but it is something important to think about is how you spend and save money. We live in a very consumeristic society. I'm definitely much as just a part of it. I bought, I buy Apple stuff all the time. On the book, man. Um, you know, and, and I get how that affects people, but like having good financial habits from a very, very young age. And I mean like 14, 15 is super important. Um, learning to save money. So I, I, I have a savings account that I don't even know what's in it. It automatically takes money from my bank account, puts into my savings account every single week, mm. right? And what's funny is every once in a while I'll check it. I'm like, oh, that was, oh, okay, there's money. Oh, great, great. And because I didn't think about it. For me, because it's out of sight, it's out of mind, right? And so you have to set yourself up financially. I have a stock account. I have a retirement account. And, and these are the things I always had, right? Like 10 years ago when I was actually making a lot more money, I didn't have any of this. And I'm 42, so I'm and like a lot of people have to think about retirement and the future and then their health and all that kind of stuff. So I think the other thing to prepare for your career in the future is learn good financial habits early on, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that actually gives you the freedom to do more in your career. Because if you're if you lose a job and you don't have that emergency fund, you're gonna have to make decisions that might not be best. Right? right. I'm lucky enough now that I do have a somewhat of an emergency fund and I worked hard to get there. I had to curb my spending right? Can't be eating out every night. I can't be buying the latest and greatest. I can't be like going out all the time and, and doing all this stuff. Um, I have to be smart about it. And that is, like I said, it's the communication, writing, um, learning how to learn and financial well-being. I think these are the four uh, tenets of being a modern worker that everyone at any career level at any kind of industry has to have. How do we uh, better prepare young people or college graduates that you know are coming into this workforce? What should be included in education? How do we start you know teaching these things? You know what was great is that the, the students I was talking to. I've seen college, high school programs roll out communication courses, um, roll out financial well being courses. I definitely think there should be courses on taxes and, and, and savings and stuff like that. I, I think one of the things we do is we look at money as the goal often, right? Being rich as the goal or being successful as the goal. But really, if you look at being good at what you do and being a great person, being a kind, helpful person, that actually matters more in the long term, right? Um, like uh, I know Malcolm Gladwell has like the, the 10,000 hour, hour theory where you're supposed to support 10,000 hours on a scale. Um, I do believe in expertise, right? Like I have put in the work to be good at what I am. And, mm-hmm. and so I think for young people, um, you know, I know when you're younger, my daughter was in college and she's going through this sometimes. She's like, oh, what do I want to do in the future? But for a lot of people, like I loved music and programming and design when I was like 10 years old. And guess what? <laughs> I love music and programming and design now. It hasn't changed. And so right. I think instead of worrying like what my actual role is, I more spent time on the, the, the the things I cared about, which is music and design and programming. And I stuck in that. I focused on that. And I got really good at a really young age and kept on doing that, right? Because it's really hard to do, be good at lots of things, right? Over time, maybe you can get there. But like, um, I think especially for young people, look, if you love something, just stick with it, right? right? And it doesn't have to be something that has to make money. Just be good at it though, right? Whether it's you know singing or playing music or coding or designing or, or talking to people or being customer support, whatever role, you know, being an artist, uh, being a filmmaker, doesn't really matter. But learn to work hard at it, right? Because you have the ability as a young person to not worry about taxes, <laughs> not worry about like work stress, to just worry about learning and enjoying yourself, right? 
And I was lucky enough to have that when I was learning programming and music when I was young. And those skills have still stayed with me, right? Those are passions that still stay with me. So it's not about finding the right career early on. It's finding about what you care about and sticking through it. Because a lot of people will be like, I tried this for a bit and then I tried this and then and look, there's nothing wrong with that. Everyone goes through you know, phases of like trying to figure out what's right for them. But if you do have a passion for something, even if you're not good at it, especially if you're not good at it, stick with it, right? Mm-hmm. And that is that like, it's going to be hard at first. You know, you're going to make those first notes on guitars or violin. It's going to be like, eh, squawk, you know, like, yeah. and your first coding is Mike going to be like, oh, this was crap, right? That's, that's great. That we don't expect you and you should expect yourself to be amazing from day one. You should, what you should though is do is learn how to learn and learn how to learn from your mistakes. So I think that's an important thing for young people, which is like, I don't need you to be amazing. I need you to work hard and I need you to care about something that you really care about and not, don't be afraid to share that. You know, mm-hmm. in these terms of success, one of the things that you've said is it's not always about entrepreneurs who make billions. Sometimes it's the people who make you feel a billion times better. What has this meant for you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, no, thank you. I, you know, we've seen a recent, you know, with WeWork and, and, and Uber and SoftBank and all these crazy valuations with these unicorn type startups um, where wealth becomes money and becomes power and and the focus becomes really odd. Um, What I always like to say is like when I talk to a coaching client and we really hear them, we really hear their struggles, what they're going through and we help them, whether it's confidence or imposter syndrome or or becoming a better manager or just getting the job that they want, um, really showing up and being there for them, I think is what I love, right? Like I like I, I like to say, I would have the impact I have with you be a million times than me make a million dollars. And so the work I want to do, I want to be really thoughtful. And I really want it to really connect and really, really help you. Um, because if I can't do that for one person, how can I do that for a million? Right? I think a lot more think about scale and growth way too early. And all these companies that are scaling and growing, they don't have good business practices. Uber is still not making money. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so sound business practices, I think are super important at higher club. We have great economics. We actually make money, um, you know, and, and we know how to be aware of our money. And, and so I think it's what's super important is that, um, the impact you make in someone's life, I call it exponential value. Right. So perfect example, I think to date something like we've made over $300,000 with higher club, but if we look at that, the hundred or the 1 million salary increases we've had, that's already a three X like exponential value, right? right. include the community effects that we've built or all the other things that we've done. Just looking at that alone, that's three X more. We've made more money. We made people more money than we've charged. Mm-hmm. And what companies can say that, especially at an early stage, right? We've actually made your, hopefully your life better, right? Both financially and in, and in the support that we give you. And so I think, that is the impact I want in my career and my business and what I want to hire Cliff be all about, which is providing you value, but connecting you to coach that can help you succeed and that support network. But the value I give you should be greater than the value I charge. Mm. Right. And then you should be willing to pay that value because you realize you're getting ROI is high. Right. <laughs> so like one of the, the candidates, we got them a $60,000 raise. Uh, our, co- when our, our coach Dexter did the other week. I think he spent something like $700 in coaching so far. And he made sixty thousand. Wow. I don't know what the percentage growth on that is, like, right. but it's ridiculous. Where else legally can you spend like a thousand dollars and make sixty thousand? You can't even do that in Vegas, right? Right. <laughs> this is a legal way of saying invest in yourself, and we will invest ten x, hundred x, three hundred x in you. And that ultimately is what I believe in, in terms of what we want to build with Higher Club and what we want to build as a product is that. You invest in us and we're going to invest way more back in you. Well, before I get to my last question, where can people find out more about you, find out more about Higher Club? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, uh, We are called uh, Higher Club, H-I-R-E-C-L-U-B, right? Like Fight Club, but higher hiring. Higherclub.com, that's our URL. On every social network, we're at Higher Club. Um, So on Twitter, at Higher Club, at Instagram, at Higher Club. My personal email is uh, getten at higherclub.com. So K-E-T-A-N at higherclub.com. I love getting emails. I do my best to answer every single one. Um, we have a fantastic Facebook, which is now 30,000 members. We just hit 30,000 last week. 
Um, Very nice. And so, uh, which is facebook.com slash hire club. You can find us there. And if you are looking for support in your career, whether you're a founder, whether you're looking for a job, whether you're a PM or a designer, uh, you're returning to work um, and you're having struggles with your boss, whatever it is, um, we offer coaching to help you succeed. And you can get a free session with us. It's 15 minutes free. We'll match you with a coach. We have a matching process that matches with the right coach. And once you describe it, one of the things we offer is really great. If you don't have a good fit with your first coach, you can try up to two others. Right. We like to try up the three coaches to make sure you have that right fit because we know that fit is super important. So we really want to help you succeed. So uh, come find us. All right. So we'll have a code called Evolve just for your listeners. Um, okay. We'll release that today for you where you'll get $20 off your first month. Okay. Perfect. Good. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, uh, my last question is how can we push the world to evolve? Whew. So this goes back to what you were saying like, how do you affect change? I don't think you can push the world to evolve. I think you can push yourself to evolve. Mm. That's change starts within. It starts from yourself. And hopefully you can become a leader and inspire other people to have that change. But it's really hard to change other people. And I don't think it's a worthwhile effect. But if you can change yourself to be better, if you can evolve yourself, which I have spent a lot of hard work and a lot of mistakes in doing, um, that I think is how the world evolves. Individually, people recognizing that they have to involve themselves. Hey you, yes you, I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, keep evolving.